Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm here with Nathan. Great to be with you, Nathan. Great to be with you too, Raf. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's so fun to record these in person. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, it's definitely good uh, for the, I suppose, for the the feedback aspect, you know, conversing with someone. I think the majority of conversation is actually in the body language, you know, just like in facial expressions and tone of voice and stuff, and you can really obviously pick that up more clearly in person, so... Yeah, it makes it more natural too, I think, yeah. Mm. So we're going to talk today about the missing principle of Pilates, which is? I'm going to say it is progressive overload, and then there'll be other things which will tie into that. But the way that I've come to this conclusion is if I wanted to become a personal trainer or if I wanted to become a physiotherapist, one of the things I'd have to learn in the process of doing that are training principles. And one of the training principles is progressive overload. So in order for me to be effective in those roles at helping the clients get their most optimal outcomes, I need to have that understanding of how to adapt the load I'm using, whichever form of machinery it is or body weight or anything, to be able to get this outcome to be successful at that role. So because it universally applies to all training and Pilates is a form of training, I think what would make us effective in that role as Pilates instructors is to understand exactly how progressive overload works with a reformer and then to be the one who can optimise the load for the clients. So we want to actually take advantage of that principle because I've never met anyone that categorically denied progressive overload was the thing. I don't think there'll be anyone who'll disagree with that. So if we all agree it is a thing, then we should be able to articulate it and intentionally use it for a purpose. And in that way, I don't see it as going against any principles that already exist. I see it as enhancing your understanding of what you already know. So it's going to add value to whatever you're doing. Yeah. So I want to just uh, set a little background there then. So that... Uh, in Pilates, um, many, well, depending on where you're trained, uh, you may have learned the six principles of Pilates, which are uh, concentration, control, centering, uh, flowing movement, precision, and breathing. Uh, they weren't actually created by Joseph Pilates, and we've done a whole episode on the principles of Pilates. Uh, those principles were introduced by uh, Philip Friedman and Gail Eisen in their book, The Pilates Method of Physical and Mental Conditioning, first published in 1980. Uh Joseph passed away in 1967, so this was you know, more than a decade after he died. Uh, and they really lay out the 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 these principles. Are, it's around you know having full control of your body, and uh, so that is those are the those are the six principles of Pilates. Now, if you were brought up like I was in some a different, more contemporary style of Pilates, like stop Pilates, we I didn't learn those principles. When I did stop Pilates, I learned the biomechanical principles, pelvic placement, scapular stabilization, things like that. So you know whichever principles you, you want to think about, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really too fussed about uh, at this, for the purpose of this conversation. But uh, I think what I mean, what, what interests me here is that all of those principles, the Friedman and Eisen principles, you know, uh, concentration, control, centering, flowing movement, precision, breath, they're all about contr- you know, being in control of your body. And, so if we sort of zoom out to 
just the thing, the categories of things that bodies are capable of, right? So if we come into any physical um, fitness type of, whether it's yoga, physical therapy, personal training, or Pilates, or any other, yeah, calisthenics, ballet, gymnastics, whatever, you can only really enhance, you know, three physical capabilities in a human, which are strength, range of motion, and control. Right? And if, you know, if we, sure, we could quibble and say, okay, within strength, there's power and endurance and, you know, but it's like, basically, it's the, the, the contractile force that the muscle produces, right? So your ability to move stuff around in the world. Okay. And then there's range of motion at each joint. And then there is your ability to control yourself and control would encompass, you know, proprioception, coordination, balance, agility, you know, all of those aspects that are to do with the nervous system controlling, you know, the, the body and the objects in the world. So we've got these three capabilities, right? So regardless of whether you're doing a stretch class or CrossFit or classical Pilates or whatever, like you're working on some combination of those things, strength, strength, range of motion and control, right? There is no like fourth <laughs> capability that, I, that I've ever heard of as an exercise scientist. And sure, I mean, there are lots of other benefits like, you know, better mental health and all that, but that's not like an ability that you're, you know, you don't do like 12 reps of happiness, you know, on a, you know but you can do 12 reps of footwork or biceps curls or, or you know, so, so what we're, what, you know, any mental or psychological benefits we get from we derive from Pilates come as a, a consequence of the physical things that we do. It's a physical discipline. And so we're always working within the medium of some combination. And I would say it's always some combination of strength, range of motion and control. And so one exercise might be, you know, more you know, biased towards challenging strength and not really range of motion much or not much control, but there'll always be some element of, you know, of each, right? Even something like a plank where it's like, you think, oh, there's no range of motion. It's like, well, your shoulders have to be flexed 90 degrees, you know, in a plank. So, you know, and your toes are flexed 90 degrees in a plank. So yeah, there is some, you know, it's not like if I wanted to get super flexible, that wouldn't be my number one choice of exercise, but there is some requirement there. Uh, and so each, every exercise we do in Pilates has some combination of challenge to strength, range of motion and control. And, and I think that, you know, when we think of Pilates through the lens of those six Pilates principles, we're really thinking a lot about control. And to a certain extent, we're thinking about range of motion because we want to get the joints lined up in certain positions and sometimes you have to increase range of motion to do that. But there's very little, if any, I think, thought about how to challenge and improve strength within traditional or contemporary or even, I think a lot of the time, fitness, Pilates classes. And we, we tend to progress challenge for people, like when the exercise gets too easy, we increase the control or range of motion aspect of the exercise often without increasing the load. Yep. I feel like that is a, an aspect which isn't something which is a, a, a basic foundation of most people's understanding of an exercise. Like if you were to ask them how to do an exercise, they'd better articulate the processes of teaching it or the movement patterns required, but they wouldn't be able to tell you exactly um, how to adapt the load and um, what is it about the springs which is contributing to scaling the load? Like what would you do, for example? What are the, the changes you could make? 
Um, to give an example, you know, you could change a spring, which would change the load, but you could also change a spring stretch. You know, you could change the body position to put more of your own mass on that muscle group. You could change the body position to increase the time and attention. Like these things, so articulate those, and then to be able to incrementally scale the load with a system or a plan, that's something which isn't really articulated. So people tend to kind of be more rigidly adhering to a process or method without being able to understand is this uh, like the most optimal way to load someone in the eyes of a progressive overload idea. Right. When when I I mean when I learned Pilates I was taught like okay let's say I don't know footwork's good for your quads and thighs, right? And it is. It's true. Right, so but so you do footwork on your quads and thighs, and you start on maybe three full springs. You know, depending on what brand of equipment you've got and how strong you are to start with, or whatever. Let's say you start on three full springs, and after a while you get a bit stronger, you can do three and a half springs. So there's some progressive load for you. Um, but then, you know, I've very, very rarely, apart from you know, when I go to my friend Heath's class, I very rarely go into a class where they do footwork and they, they say whack on all the springs. And then just do it on one leg, you know, like usually it's like three springs or if you're more advanced, three and a half springs, or if you're more advanced, four springs and that's it. And like 12 months later, you're still doing it on four springs Mm. and you, you literally haven't progressed the movement. And so when you first start out, then it's a brand new movement and you don't have much muscle tone in your legs. Well, you do get stronger, but then pretty quickly that plateaus off. And you stop getting stronger and like year after year after year, you just keep doing your 12 reps of footwork on the four springs. It's like, you're not going to keep getting stronger after, yeah. after the very early first few weeks. It's like you plateaued in week three and that's it. Yeah. So that's the idea then where if that's like the, the baseline starting point, the idea of uh, progressive overload will, would be, well, what do we change now to progress? And uh, are we increasing the resistance that we're using? Are we increasing the reps that we're doing? That kind of understanding over time um, is what's going to give the clients a continued benefit from coming back to the same class experience. So to set up a studio to be able to achieve that, something as simple as having spring levels for exercises if you're training groups of people is really, really effective in bringing the idea of progressive overload into the teaching system. And... Just to explain why that would be effective is... So, well, so firstly, what do you mean by spring levels? Yeah, so spring levels would be saying that, hey, if you look at the springs themselves, they're basically just different levels of load. So you could say if you look at, let's say, an average reformer, we could generalise and say most reformers have five to six springs. Most reformers are going to have at least three different levels of tension, you could say that one of the springs is the lighter spring. We've got one that's like a medium spring, and we've got the heavy one. And usually they have like three medium, one light, and one heavy, or something similar to that. Yep. Um, so, pretty basically, all reformers are going to have that. Now, the idea of progressive overload is to intentionally adapt the load over time. Now, we're talking about a machine that has f- five to six different springs with different levels of tension. To me, that sounds like it's useful for adaptation. As you, you know, so the idea that spring tension should be the same, um, it doesn't make sense because we've got a machine which is designed to scale load. So for us to understand the purpose of an exercise, I think we have to look at what's the primary source 
of load? What are the prime movers, the muscle groups that are being um, used the most to make this movement happen? And to explain that, basically the, with the reformer, it's either body weight is the main load we're using and the, any exercise in which less spring tension makes an exercise harder to do, that tells you body weight's the load straight away. So that's one. And number two is any exercise in which more spring tension makes it harder, that tells you the resistance of the springs is the actual challenge. So we can identify that there's basically on the reformer, if you're using the springs, there's only two directions of progression, either less tension or more tension. And for some exercises, you can do both, right? So if it's something like a long stretch with your hands on the bar and feet on the foot plat, uh, on the shoulder pads, well, if you have, let's say, one-ish, depending on your body weight, right, one-ish springs on, well, then less springs is harder, but also more springs is harder in the opposite direction. Yep. Um, but you could also quantify that in the way of if you if we focus on which is which muscle group is required, then we could separate them still. We could say that if you start off on like a, a a tension a spring tension which is supporting your mass mainly, and then you were to decrease from that point, we could say that that first level that base level was like you could call it equivalent to a beginner level or the most achievable level, and as we reduce the tension, then we're progressing. Uh, the load, where basically you have to support more of your own mass, so that's the direction of progression. If you were to start with the spring tension, which is already requiring you to push, so it's more loading the shoulders to make this movement happen, if that's your baseline, that's your starting point, and would have progressed the load in the direction of heavier resistance, so you have to work harder and harder to push away. Now we can say, well, basically we've got a baseline point to start from, which is working the shoulders, and then if you direct um, progress the, um, the load with more resistance, that's the direction of progression. Right. So in the example of long stretch, if we're thinking of it as a pulling exercise where you're working kind of the lats and the abs, so you have to pull the carriage in, well, again, depending on the mass of the person, but let's say like one medium spring is kind of like average, right, which that would be the beginner level, right, and therefore half a spring or a light spring would be harder, you know, a quarter spring or an even lighter spring would be even harder, right, and no springs would be super hard. Whereas, and that would all be on the same muscle groups. You'd be working your abs and your lats harder and harder and harder. That's and the reference point for right, that exercise. And your triceps and your pecs to a certain extent or whatever. But then if we go up up in springs and say, again, depending on the mass of the person, but let's say like one and a half springs or a medium plus a light sort of thing, yep. you're going to actually find that it's relatively easy on your abs and you're struggling to push the carriage out, yep. right? So you're now working your front delts and you know some of those shoulder muscles. And so that one and a half there or, you know, medium plus a light would be the beginner level and then, you know, two medium or one and three quarters would be the, you know, intermediate level and add more springs makes it harder on those same muscle groups. That's right. So all you need then with this idea is to know that the base level is already targeting a muscle group which you intend to focus on. So if you were to start off with that version of a long stretch which is focusing on the abdominals, you have to have to make sure that the first option you provide in terms of the load is enough load to target that muscle group but it's also supportive enough to make it achievable to work in a full range of motion and at a, a speed of movement which means that you can do it for a, a fairly decent period of time because you don't want to be like loaded too much in which you can't even hold your form, for example. So it has to be achievable and you have to be able to do it for a decent duration. I'd consider 90 seconds plus, you know, pretty good. Closer to three minutes would be very good. Um, 
that means now that if that's the starting point and you keep coming back to doing this exercise in the future, we could say very clearly, okay, to progress in this exercise, let's do the same thing with less support. And so in the example of long stretch, well, I don't know if I could do long stretch on one spring for three minutes. Uh, so maybe that would be like the, the beginner version would actually be kneeling long stretch on one spring, you know, which I, I'm pretty sure I could do for three minutes. Yep. Um, and then the sort of intermediate version would be full plank on one spring. And then the advanced version might be full plank on a light spring sort of thing. Yeah. So the kneeling version, um, we could have like a lower level of spring tension to start with for a beginner level. If I was just going to use the balanced body springs as a, as a way which might hopefully universally make a more, more sense to more people based on how much that machine's used, you could say that basically the blue spring for the kneeling version of a, a long stretch, so knees down, feet in the shoulder pads, hands on the bar, arms straight, hinge at the shoulder and slide away, the blue would be for the majority of people based on body mass the most optimal beginner level so without that's, that's the light spring, right, on the balanced body. The, yeah. red, the red's like the, quote, normal or medium. Well, that's the interesting thing because a balanced body quotes the blue spring as being the light and the yellow is extra light. But if when you speak to reformer instructors, they tend to quantify it based on how the springs relate to themselves. So, like, they would say the lighter spring is the light spring. Um, I That's how I, I talk too because it makes the most sense when you're talking to clients, you know. So, uh, yeah, so the if we just stick with the colour then um, – the blue would be the easiest because if you go to the red, which is the, a heavier spring, a thicker spring, that requires you to push the carriage out for most people. So you say, okay, the starting point would be the blue. Now, if you go for the yellow, the yellow is less tension uh, than the blue, so it's a harder version of the same thing. And then if you went no spring, that would be a harder version of the same thing. Um, but if you're going to do the long stretch, so it's the same movement pattern, but instead, you know, full plank, leg straight, arm straight. The starting position for most people is somewhere between a red and a yellow or a red. And then it's going to decrease in tension too. So um, so, so then if you were teaching that exercise, so this is getting back to your idea of uh, spring levels, right? So you would say, okay, we're going to, everyone, we're going to do long stretch. So put your foot bar all the way up and put on a red and a yellow if you're a beginner. Or a, help me out with the spring choices here, or a red for intermediate or a yellow for advanced blue. or a blue yep. for advanced, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is just basically decreasing the spring tension each step. So just read it for like a heavy, you know, medium spring for beginners, a medium to light spring for intermediate and a light spring for advanced would be another way of thinking about it if we don't have those colour choices available to us. Right? Yeah, it's challenging to even use that terminology because everyone is accustomed to their own machine and everyone has different terminology to describe the same thing because all we're really looking at is colours, you know, uh, and thicknesses of springs. And uh, so the, the terminology is very mixed. Like I find that personally from teaching at so many different studios, you walk into that studio space and you see they've got different machines and you just have to adapt how to communicate. All right. So just let's bookmark that for a sec because I just want to make sure we, we're clear on this point that so you would have, you know, given whatever brand of machine you have and whatever colour of springs you have in your studio, right, you figure out that, okay, let's say a red and a yellow is is the beginner level where like 80% of beginners, given the average body mass of people who attend your classes, you know, they have to work just a little bit to pull the carriage in, right? Yeah. They can do that for a couple of minutes, yeah. you know, without knocking themselves out, right? And then you basically just every time you take off a little bit of spring, it just makes it 
one level harder, right? Um, and so we just calibrate that. And so here's so so then you would say, all right. So at this studio, the next step up would be as the studio owner, right? You would say at this studio, you know, when we teach long stretch, you know, red and a yellow is beginner level, red is intermediate level, and blue is advanced level, right? And and that translates into the way that you teach the springs in class. So instead of just saying, hey, we're going to do long stretch, put on a red spring, or, which is a bit better but still not ideal, I think, we're going to do long stretch, so put on somewhere between a red or a yellow, right? (laughs) Because the problem with that is, I mean, it gives choice, which is good, but it doesn't tell me which one's harder, right? And it doesn't let me calibrate. Okay, well, just say I even know a yellow is harder. Like, how much harder is it? Yeah, you know, it's like, like it's like going to someone in like a personal training class. All right, do, we don't we're going to do bench press. Put on somewhere between twenty and hundred kilos. It's like, well, fuck, what do I need? You know, like how yeah. many reps are we going to be doing? Yeah. <laughs> so there needs to be some kind of like you have to prescribe the load to them based on what right. they're so trying you to do. Say like, if you're a beginner, if it's your first time here today, put on a red and a yellow. Right. If you're intermediate, if you've been coming for a couple of months regularly, put on a red. Etc. Right. So you actually give people criteria yep. of here's how to know which spring choice is probably going to suit you the best. That's really important because if they actually understand not just um, what's harder but why it's harder, now there's like a reason to do it. Like now there's a reason to try and use less spring tension, you know, and when they can do it, it means they can recognize their own success. Like, hey, I'm stronger than when I started because I can do this. It's not just colors because colors don't have any kind of value. You know. Right, and I've had this conversation with a lot of Pilates instructors where we talk about like, oh, what is the right spring choice for this exercise? And well, the answer is, well, how heavy is the person that's who's doing the exercise and how strong are they and what range of motion do they possess and where are they, where's their foot on the floor? <laughs> like, so it's like, yeah, there is no single answer to that question for any given exercise. It's all going to depend on multiple factors. Yeah, that's right. So, so, all right, so even in this, this simple exercise like long stretch, which is mechanically pretty simple, like you're literally only moving one joint in your body. <laughs> so how do you calibrate, right? Because just say you walk into the studio and you weigh like 100 kilos yep. and you're like six foot two, yep. and then, I don't know, Laura walks into the studio and she's like five foot five or something and weighs 50 kilos <laughs> or whatever. And it's like, well, if you both do long stretch on a red and a yellow, are you both going to experience the same level of challenge there? Yeah. So a client's experience with spring tension is relative to their body mass and body length. Um, The reason spring levels will work is because the vast majority of our clients are going to fit within an average range of mass and body length. So that's like the base level of the understanding because we can actually predict the experience they're going to have if we just understand how they're different from the average experience. You know, the reason standardized springs exist is because it's just the realization that most people fit within that range. Right. And so the point here is that the nature of spring resistance is that it's not a linear, there's not a linear relationship between how far you extend the carriage and the spring resistance. Like with a, say, a a cable machine with a weight stack on it, when you, the first inch that you pull it, it weighs the same as the second inch and the third inch and the fourth inch. Whereas with the spring, the first inch that you pull it from rest, it's got almost no resistance. And But each inch that you extend it, it resists you more and more and more and more. So the further you push the carriage out, the more resistance there is. So for a taller person who starts in long stretch with the carriage further out, there's actually more spring resistance in that exercise than there is for a shorter person. That's right. So you could think of the springs more similar to an elastic band, 
in the way that you stretch it more, it gives you more resistance. Right. So, so if you and me are in there and you're six foot two and I'm five foot two, yep. right? I'm not five foot two. That sounded kind of weird. But um, if you're six foot two and I'm five foot two and we're both on one red spring, yeah. right? We don't have the same spring tension. No. Okay, so it's a gradual increase in tension. So think of the spring stretching. The more you stretch it, the more resistance you get. So you could say that as the spring stretches, it gradually increases in resistance, and as it comes back, it gradually decreases. So if you have a longer body, so you've got longer limbs, longer arms, longer legs, your range of motion will stretch the spring further than someone with a shorter body. So you're going to get more resistance in the same exercise as someone else. So... All these things, if you hear them for the first time, they sound kind of like complex, but they're actually super, super simple. So the main thing to realize is for the average body mass and body range, using a certain spring and a certain movement, what is their what is their muscle group which is loaded and what's the experience going to be? And then if you understand from that point what you do to, to make it harder, as in what the spring levels would be, would it be less tension to be harder or more tension to be harder and be as incremental as possible um, with that, so that makes it achievable. As soon as you understand that, then we can factor in things like body mass and body length and how that experience would be different because it is very, very predictable. For example, if we said, okay, we've got uh, a client that sits within the average body mass and body length range and we could say for them that the version of a long stretch with the knees down, we could say, okay, the blue spring on the balanced body reformer is the beginner level to work the abdominals yellow intermediate, no spring advanced. Now, for us to look at uh, this experience for someone else, we'd have to say, if you have someone who weighs significantly more that also has a shorter body length than average, so we're going to like imagine, can, can we predict what they would experience in this hypothetical scenario? Well, we could say, okay, if they've got more mass than the average, that means the spring won't support them as much. So automatically that blue won't feel like a blue for them. It probably feels more like a yellow maybe. It's just dependent on their mass. And we could also say, okay, if they're shorter than average, the spring won't stretch as much. So that means they're not going to get as much support from the spring either because they're not going to get the full stretch that someone else might. So we could predict that someone with more mass and a shorter body length is going to have a harder time doing exercises where they have to support their own mass on standard springs. Right, and it's not necessarily because they've got weaker abs. It's actually just because the exercise is literally harder for them. (laughs) That's right. And then you could flip that and say, okay, let's try and predict what it would be like for someone with a longer than average body and less than average body mass. So if they've got less than average body mass, what they're going to find is that standard spring setting would feel more supportive than it would be for the average person. And if they've got longer than average body uh, body length, like limbs, they're going to stretch the spring further. Now, if they stretch the spring further in that exercise, they're going to actually get more resistance. So if they've got less mass and they stretch the spring further than average, it's going to be much easier for them. So anyone with a longer body with less mass than average will find exercises where they have to support their own weight much easier. Now, that also means, though, they will find exercises where they have to work in spring tension harder because they've got less mass to to move against that heavy resistance. So it's going to feel heavier and they're going to stretch the spring further because they've got longer limbs so that you're going to get more resistance too. So it's like a, it's like a double-edged sword. It's like because we have the ability to, to challenge you based on body weight exercises and on spring-loaded exercises, we can like clearly predict these kind of experiences and the the thing about being an instructor, the thing which is the most powerful is 
If you understand this, then you have the power to intuitively adapt the springs or the body position to optimize this exercise for the client in real time because you're observing how they're moving. That tells you what they're feeling and then you can adapt it for them with the goal of getting the outcome that everyone is trying to get from this exercise, which means that the muscle group that we're trying to load is the one that's getting loaded and it's achievable. So, And it, and it, not just that it's achievable, but that it takes them to a point where there's sufficient load by the end of the, the sequence yeah. that they're like, they're going to get a stimulus to get stronger. So I want to, I want to bookmark that uh, idea of, you know, targeting and, and progressing. Um, and just come back to, I just want to finish on this calibration piece, right? So if I'm an instructor and I'm, let's, you know, and I want to, you know, figure out, okay, we'll just say I've always taught long stretch on like, okay, choose a red or a yellow, right? And now I'm starting to think, oh, right, well, maybe a red, red plus a yellow is beginner and a red's intermediate and a blue's advanced, right? But, you know, how do I know, maybe I don't have a balanced body machine, Okay. And, you know, I know the stop ones have colors on them, but the colors are different. It's like reds are normal and a blue, yeah, yellows. I can't remember which, anyway. But, um, yeah, so I have to figure it out for myself, basically, right? So, or just say we're talking about exercise that's not long stretched. And so we haven't <laughs> shared that with, right? So I calibrate that by getting on the reformer and just so I get in my long stretch position, I put on my best guess of what the spring's going to be that's going to make it doable, but, you know, work my abs and and uh, and lats, right? So the underside muscles rather than the, the deltoid shoulder muscles. And so basically if I've got a spring setting there where if I just relax my muscles, which way would the carriage go, right? So if, the, if I relax and the carriage is going to come in, mm. right, that means the resistance is, you know, on my delts and, you know, I'm pushing the carriage out, right? Whereas if I relax and the carriage is going to shoot out, that means that my body weight is the – is the load, right? Yeah. So if I'm in my kneeling long stretch and I think, okay, what would happen if I just relaxed here? And and the answer is like, oh, I'd face plant on the thing and on the springs and the carriage would shoot out to the end of the track. Well, that means that I'm working my abs and my lats in that movement, right? Yeah. And so basically how many springs can I add on and still have that where it's, it's abs and lats, right? Where the carriage wants to go out, yep. right? Well, that's your beginner setting, yep. right? And then if we just add a teeny bit more spring on top of that, and now the carriage wants to come in just very gently, right? So I have to work a little bit just to stop it parking. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my beginner setting for the pushing version of long stretch. That's right. Right. So there's like a threshold there that you've crossed. Um, and that's how you identify what would be an optimal starting position. So if you can articulate that, like when you when – you, if you say, okay, hey, everybody, we're going to do the long stretch and maybe you give the spring levels because you, when I, my reference point, my context is when I'm talking about this, I'm always talking about it with the idea that I'm talking to 10, 15, 20 people at once. So with the understanding of the average body mass and body length, I know that majority of people are going to fit in that range. So when I give a leveled spring option to people, most people will feel that. So that's a, a strategy which I'd use to be effective in that environment. Um, now, because I give that option doesn't mean I'm not aware that everyone's not going to have the same experience. It's just that to get most people moving in the shortest amount of time possible, it's a an effective way to do it. Now, for anybody with a significant difference in body mass or body length, 
I will personally adapt the springs for them. I might give them more or less spring tension based on what they need. Now, to make sure everyone's getting the experience I intend, I'm going to spend a lot of time observing the movement of everybody in that exercise and I'm looking for what's the speed of movement and what's the range of motion they're achieving because that tells me what they're feeling. Right. So if I'm doing like full plank long stretch with no springs, right, and just say I don't have like Cirque du Soleil level abs, you know, you're going to see me reduce my range of motion significantly (laughs) and you're going to see me shudder and shake and grimace and contort and, you know, and that will be still present but just to a less extreme degree if it's just a little bit too strong for me, right? And if it's, on the other hand, if it's too easy for me, you'll see me just kind of floating back and forth through full range of motion whilst talking on my phone and scrolling through Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what you – what you observe as the instructor tells you everything that's happening in real time. And I lean into that as my, uh, well, maybe I'd phrase it, it's my go-to, it's like uh, it's my personal strategy to be effective in group classes. Because uh, with this understanding, it doesn't matter, you know, in which country you're teaching. It doesn't matter. What you always find is all the reformers in the studio are the same, but all the bodies are different. So when I spend time observing in that room and I can see the speed of movement and the range of motion they're achieving, it doesn't matter if I can even speak the same language. I know what they're feeling because we're all human. So all I have to do is just adapt the tension for them to make sure they're getting that experience because if I don't adapt it for them, then I'm basically saying only everyone in the average body mass range will get an outcome which I desire and everyone who weighs significantly more or significantly less is just not going to get what I intended. Right, and so if you're... And I'm sorry I keep going back to this calibration thing, but if you're like you, right, you probably are 100 kilos, 110, something like that, which is what, you're 220 pounds, I'm about the same, right? So when I do long stretch on one spring, it's fucking hard, right? (laughs) And then, you know, I'm next to some, I mean, class, I'm next to some like 45 kilo, you know, woman, and she's like, oh, when are we going to get out of the warm-up? And I'm like, yeah, I'm dying here, and she's like, you know, doing reps on one hand. And so if you're a 45-kilo ex-ballet dancer teaching Pilates now, understand that your experience with the spring choice and where you feel it is not going to reflect the average client. And likewise, if you're a 100-kilo, you know, human and you're you're teaching Pilates, your spring, the spring choice where you feel it is not going to reflect you know, if I went into class and said, okay, everyone, I'm going to smash your abs, so put on one red spring, we'll do long stretch. Yep. Like everyone would be like, ha ha, that's a funny joke, you know. <laughs> but I'd be like, how can you do more than three reps? This is hard, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you have to calibrate. You can't just calibrate on your own body unless you are kind of like average-ish height and weight, right? If you're significantly shorter or taller, heavier or lighter, then the – and when I say average, I mean the average of your clients – Yes. Right. If you teach ballet dancers, well, that's your average client. If you teach, you know, middle-aged, unfit people, well, that's your average client. So, yeah. whatever the average person in your class is, if your mass and height are significantly different to that, you're not going to be able to calibrate calibrate using your own body. You have to get someone else who's got a more average representative height and mass. Right. Yes. So, this idea, it only seems to be kind of unfamiliar in. <sighs> In reformer studios, I mean, if we went to a gym right now and we walked in there and we saw five people doing squats, how normal would it be everyone's using different weight? So but all of a sudden, if we walk into the reformer studio, why does everyone have to use the same spring? You know, it's just like it, it doesn't make sense. So 
the idea that we're all different, different dimensions, different mass, um, and that the spring tension is relative to us. So the greatest thing we could do as the instructor is to have an intention of what we're trying to get out of the exercise, as in what's the outcome? We should know that in advance. Which muscle groups are loaded? And now we have to guarantee everybody gets that experience. That's it. So I have to guarantee as the instructor, it doesn't matter what your body is, you're working the same muscle group as everyone else. Now, if I'm not doing that, let's say we're, we're doing an exercise in class that he's using body weight as the load and everyone's on the same machine, everyone's on the same spring, yet we've got a big range in body mass in the room. So for me to be able to guarantee everyone's getting the same experience, I have to understand, hey, if we've got people that weigh a lot more but everyone's on the same spring, that spring won't magically readjust itself to support them the same. It's just going to be less supportive. So if I don't adapt the tension, I'm asking people with more mass to work harder than everyone else. And that is really not going to be a benefit to them. They're not going to get the same benefit out of that exercise as everyone else would because I'm asking them to work at more intermediate slash advanced level on the same thing. So what matters as a priority when you teach an exercise, I believe, is can I guarantee every human is getting the same experience, loading the same muscle group, achieving a full range of motion at the desired speed for every exercise? And when I have a clear intention before I teach it, that means it makes it easy for me to adapt it to get to that fit, so to make sure everyone's achieving it. If I don't really know what muscle group I'm trying to target, what range of motion will be optimal, what speed of movement's optimal, and I just say, hi, everybody, this is the spring we need. Because my intention isn't that clear in the first place, then I'm not really sure how to adapt it to get there. So you have to start with, and I'm, let's just stick with long stretch because it's super simple and, you know, it's such a simple movement yes. uh, is what I mean. Uh, and also because you can load it differently and make the spring the resistance versus the body weight the resistance. So if we're talking about a body weight resistance long stretch, so a light spring long stretch, you know, where it's, you know, it's arms, it's, you know, it's lats, it's all of that, but it's mainly abs. Like your abs are where you're going to fatigue out first in that exercise. So like your intent, when you say your intention, like with long stretch, the intention is to work the abs, right? Yep. And it's like, if we work our arms as well, that's a bonus, you know, that's great. Yep. But it's like, yeah, I mean, probably that that's the, that's the intention. So you want to choose a spring setting where, you know, eight out of 10 people in the room or six out of 10 people in the room are just going to go, oh, yeah, great, I'll fill it in my abs, bam. And then the other three or four people, you're going to be like, oh, you need to add a bit of a spring, you need to take a spring off, you know, whatever it might be, based on their body mass, okay, and based on you what you see of how they're moving. Are they struggling and reducing the range of motion, in which case you need to make it a bit easier? Or are they kind of breezing to the end and smashing the carriage on the stopper at the end and then just kind of resting there and going, oh, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. You know, or in which case you need to take a spring off and make it a bit harder, right? Until you start to see them achieve full range of motion, but with some visible level of effort. Yep. That's right. So that means now that when I teach this exercise, what matters is everybody's getting that experience. That's the number one priority. And whatever I need to do to help that happen, that's my role. So every situation is going to be unique because all the clients that you have in real time in front of you are going to be slightly different. So that's why observation is so important because I can't just go in there with a pre-written list of cues which is going to automatically help everybody adapt it for them. I have to be aware of what everyone's experiencing and be able to make changes in real time. So... With that mindset, it means that how I turn up to every class and, and what I do in every class is going to be tailored to them. 
Um, the good news is the majority of people are going to experience what you intend based on the average mass and body length. But my ability to help people that are outliers to that means that I'm going to be able to help more people. Um, and over time, that is a, I think it's very fulfilling as an instructor to be able to know that, like to, to get that real-time feedback from the clients when you observe how they move, you know what they're feeling, you're making sure everyone can do it. I think that's like taking a really good uh, leadership role in the room and saying, hey, I'm not going to leave anyone behind here. What about now if we move to a different sort of exercise where because there are certain exercises like long stretch that do lend themselves to this thing, right? So for a side splits would work exactly the same, yep. you know, uh, for a lunge, for a scooter, you know, you could, you could basically go, okay, dude, less springs is harder, more springs is harder in a different way. These are all basically very simple movements that just going to push out, come back in, push out, come back in, right? Whereas when we move to something different that may be like a legs in straps or like an some kind of inversion in legs in straps, like a short spine or something where basically it's like, yeah, I mean, you could load that up with all springs, but it'd, it'd compromise. You wouldn't actually be able to do the movement properly on, like if I think about, you know, a shoulder stand, like the, 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 the short spine with feet in straps, normally I would do that on like a three springs with my body weight. I'm pretty heavy, right? Yeah. Most people do it on one and a half, two on a stop machine. I think in stop machines. You know, because at that point, at that load, you know, the weight of your legs is largely offset by the spring tension. So it's relatively easy to get up into the shoulder stand and, you know, yep. and less load than that makes it much harder on your abs, more hard load than that makes it harder on your kind of hip extensors and your back muscles and whatever to pull the thing down. Yep. So if I did that like on zero springs, it's like, yeah, I could do it, but it it would lose, it would become a... It would, wouldn't lose, it would change the emphasis. And we talk about those three dimensions of like strength, range of motion and control, right? With say, for the average person on say one and a half stop springs, and I don't know what that is on Bell's body, but let's, let's just say it's like that's the that's the spring which is basically gently supportive, right? It's not a lot of physical effort to get up into the position. It's like the, it's mostly about the control, right? There's not a lot of range of motion challenge, although there's a bit. There's not a lot of strength challenge, although there's a bit. Right. Whereas if we go to like, okay, everyone, we're going to do that same exercise with like uh, the lightest possible spring, right? Now it's a lot of strength, but there's probably less control because you have to kind of like get up into the movement. So you can't be as graceful with it, right? But if we reduce the, if we, if we reduce the strength challenge, it's like we can be more graceful, but we actually don't get the strengthening benefit then, right? So it's kind of a trade-off. We can't necessarily have both. Right, and if we go the other way and say, okay, we're going to do that same exercise with all springs on, so right, okay, it's going to be super easy to get up. You have to work your back and your legs pretty hard to pull back down, right? So your lower back it's going to be like a, a deadlift essentially, right? And so, but it's going to be a great strengthening exercise. Probably not the best strengthening exercise. It's going to be like a relatively okay strengthening exercise because it's still not a lot of load on most of your body. It's just a lot of load on the lower back in one particular position. But we're kind of, you. it's going to be basically for most people, if you load up that exercise enough, so you're getting sufficient load on your lower back, you're going to lose the ability to execute the movement in the same way, right? So it's not like long stretch where it's really simple and just add load and keep going until you just can't do it, right? But you'll basically, if you're doing long stretch on a quarter spring, 
you can still do it, right? Like you might sacrifice a bit of range of motion or whatever, but you're still going to hit the same muscles. Whereas for some, I'm thinking even an exercise like, could I jump in there? Yeah, like okay. yeah. So what about the more, what about the more complex exercises, right? Where it's more focused on control and it's not simple and linear, and you can't just go, "Hey, let's whack an extra spring on or take an extra spring off." Yep. So I'd actually say that it is simple still. So for the balanced body, um, I'm just going to use that as reference today. Um, a red, blue, yellow would be enough tension for the vast majority of people that when they're lying on their back with their legs or their feet in the long straps, as they move their legs down towards the foot bar, they have to push, have to have some form of pushing, pressing against the resistance of the springs. Now, if you were to decrease the tension from that point, eventually what would happen is the weight of your legs would be more significant. So you'd be loading up like the hip flexors and abdominals to support the weight of your legs. And if you were to go the other direction from the red, blue, yellow, and you just progress it, made it more and more resistance, then it just gets harder and harder to push against it. Now, if we're going to, add in the movement pattern of the shoulder stand, what will happen is, let's just say we start with the red, blue, yellow as that base. The red, blue, yellow for most people is the most supportive. So if you try and do a shoulder stand, there's a bit of resistance with the spring tension, which gives you support to go up and down. It's almost like someone holding you as you do it. Uh, Now, from that point, if you increase the resistance, the hard part now is stretching the springs. So in that exercise specifically, if you were to try this at home on your reformer, if you're lying on your back with your arms straight and your legs vertical and try and keep the carriage completely still as you lift and lower your body, you're going to find that's going to load the hamstrings so well. Um, and the challenge is keeping the carriage still because you have to um, work against the resistance of the spring tension as you lift and lower your body. And the higher you go, the more you stretch the springs, the harder it will be for your hamstrings to do it. Now, if we come back to that red blue yellow as the baseline – and we go, okay, cool, let's try and do the shoulder stand now, but let's start to decrease the tension. The challenge is to actually hold your body weight because now um, there's less support from the spring tension. And if you went for the red-blue or the red-yellow or just the red, it gets really hard to control where your body is because there isn't something holding you up there now. So the movement pattern to achieve this would be slightly different. Like when you think about someone traditionally doing like a, a shoulder stand, and they, as they bring it down, usually you see that articulation of the spine and that control. When you go into lighter and lighter tension, that's the nicest way to come out of that movement pattern. But if you're going for the direction of heavier, 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 keeping the carriage completely still as you go up and down is definitely the more optimal way to do it. So I would still say even in that exercise, you could say that the exercise focus is a little bit different and the direction of progression is still based on load. Um, and... I've never seen anyone capable of using all the springs in that exercise, but it doesn't mean that we can't just incrementally increase it from the red, blue, yellow beginner point. Now, that red, blue, yellow beginner point would be optimal for most body mass and body length. However, if someone's significantly lighter, then it might be too much for them. So we might have to go red, blue instead. If someone's significantly heavier, maybe um, we need to go slightly heavier. But um, for most people, it seems like red, blue, yellow is pretty good for that. So every exercise can be, I believe, adapted with load and you can progress it in a direction. And the direction is already known in advance. It's either less tension will be harder for this one or more tension will be harder for this one and it's in reference to the muscle group that we're loading to do it. All right, I'm going to hit you. That was a good That was a good answer. I'm going <laughs> to hit you with, a, with an even harder one. Okay. So uh, do you, are you familiar with the exercise back rowing, like from the original repertoire where it's like, you know, and, 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 and yep. 
you know, it's like uh, so, um, those of you I'm um, just verbally demonstrating back rowing, which is basically it's a, it's a pretty complex movement. It comes relatively early in the, early in the reformer repertoire. Students struggle to learn it. It's very complicated, and the, I guess the 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 complexity is one thing. But what I'm really why I think this is really difficult for the process that you're uh, the system that you're outlining here is because there's very changing lever lengths with your arm position in that movement. So there's certain positions where your arm is in a very weak mechanical position and very extended that limits how much load you can put on it when it's in a stronger position. Because if, if you put more load on it in a stronger position, you actually won't be able to get into the weak position. So like, you know, I do back rowing on like one, one and a half stop springs, but it's like I could do like a million reps of that. But if I put it up to two springs, I probably couldn't even do two reps. Yep. You know. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I don't like that exercise. I know why. <laughs> I mean, if you look at because what what I'm also looking at too is the general population. General population is probably similar to me in the sense that we don't have much flexibility. Um, so for me to be in a position which is basically like a forward fold into like a trying to touch my toes in a seated position, like I can't get there. So automatically, what my range I could achieve in this is is minimal. So. I am a believer in adapting exercises for the benefit of the people doing them. So I will actually take exercises which already exist and I'll modify them to make them more achievable so it'll fit the general population. Um, The reason I believe this is I've spent time working with um, seniors and seniors have all different um, types of things which they're capable of and not capable of um, based on range of motion and, and things like that and load. So you could take an exercise like a squat and you could say, okay, ideally we'd love everyone to do it, but not everyone is capable of that for whatever reason. Let's just change it. Maybe let's make it a sit to stand on a bench instead, you know? So we're going to change the movement pattern to make it more achievable for more people. That's going to be our base level and then we can adapt it from that point. So an exercise like that, like the back rowing thing, no, nah, I don't teach it. Um, I don't find that for the majority of people that come to classes, they're capable of doing that movement pattern. So I don't believe in forcing people to move in a certain way just to do a exercise. I'm thinking about what's the outcome I'm trying to achieve, what would be a more optimal way to and more optimal exercise to get that result. So I'm pretty um, – like I'll exclude a lot of exercises based on if I don't think they're going to work. Like uh, I don't feel like I have to teach anything. Um, I'll, I'm happy to adapt things to get a better outcome. Um, and no, please notice that I'm not saying don't do it or that you can't do it. Please do whatever you like. Um, but what I'm trying to achieve is what's the best experience for the clients that have paid money to come here. And if I know that there's a whole percentage of people, maybe like 30%, 40% of people in the room that won't even be able to sit in this position comfortably, what is the point of teaching it? You know, it doesn't serve a purpose because there's so many ways we could do it which would be better. I want to adapt it to make it work for them. I'm, I'm so with you on that and I freaking hate doing that exercise. Like I'm exactly what you described. Like I'm working like a motherfucker in the start position. I'm like, I'll, you just sit me in the start position for 15 seconds, I'm sweating. You know, like <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> just to sit like that with your legs straight upright yeah, yeah. in the first place, that's tough for me because my hip flexors are loaded and I'm kind of pushing myself forward just to stay there because my hamstrings are pulling me backwards, you know. Yeah. So we're not all built the same like that. Um, but that that's something I think is, is an interesting topic, like to consider who is in front of you and then to pick exercises based on what they need. 
that's the selection process for an exercise. Even if a book says this is how this exercise is done, that's fantastic. But I need to pick the best version of this for the people here right now. So I think that choice of how you do something always has to come back to you as the instructor because your role is to help these people. Your role isn't to teach whatever was in some book. Right. And if we think about progressing those three capacities of strength, range of motion and control, right, and so we want our clients to get stronger, more flexible and more coordinated, better able to balance all that kind of stuff. Well, and we want it to be as accessible as possible to as many people in the room as possible so you don't have to be tall or short, fat or thin, young or old to get the benefit of, of the workout. Well, what we want to do then is choose simple movements that are scalable in all those three dimensions. So we can scale the load, we can scale the range, and we can scale the control, right? And even better if we can scale those things independently. So maybe you can cope with more load, but you don't have the range of motion, right? Or maybe you've got better control, but you don't have the strength. And so we can, you know, if we can choose exercises that are scalable in all those three dimensions. So we can just go, okay, Nathan, your shoulder's hurting a bit today and long stretch, just reduce your range of motion a bit today, but you can keep the load there if that's feeling comfortable for you, right? So we can actually scale it, you know, accordingly. And I think the the more complex a movement is, the less you it's able to be scaled in any of those dimensions because yeah. – it's just there. There are too many kind of sticking spots in the movement for any, like for whether for control range of motion or like you know back rowing is a perfect example because you know eighty percent of the movement is not a challenge to range of motion, but twenty percent of it is an extreme challenge to range of motion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, eighty percent of it is not a challenge to strength at all. Twenty percent of it's an extreme challenge to strength in a very weak mechanical position. Yeah. You know, so so there there are there are Whereas something like long stretch, well, you can go as far or as short as the person's capable of. You can add as much or as little load as the person's capable of, right? And so if we wanted to add a control element to long stretch, I think you'd, you know, I mean, you could get them kneeling on something wobbly or whatever, but I think you'd probably be better to just think of a different exercise that's going to more challenge that control aspect, right? Say something like maybe a standing lunge or some other kind of, twist or whatever where there's more proprioceptive and sort of coordination challenge. Yeah. So all of these elements, they they exist together in every exercise. They're, they're kind of like ratios, you know, uh, like stability, uh, load, all these things. They're not – they can't really exist without the other. So that's why I think if we only talk about stability, we're actually just like – we're not really fully comprehending this movement or this exercise. Um, so – often I've had conversations with people about people that get really, really, really into like the, the original or the these principles from the Pilates Method book. And because prog- progressive overload isn't in there and load isn't mentioned, that means that in their mindset, it's not important. It's not a thing. Yeah. So, But the reality is for the any experience you're trying to provide for someone, it will be a part of it. Uh, and understanding it and being able to use it to help people, that's I think that's the that's the key. So being able to adapt the load with intention, uh, with for purpose, is I think what you'd consider something which is above average in the quality of experience you can provide for a client. If you understand it so well, it's so intuitive to you, 
you can make it sound simple and easy to understand for the people doing it. You empower them with autonomy to make their own decisions and you give them the reward of actually achieving something. Um, now, And they get stronger. Yeah, they get stronger. <laughs> and all the benefits of that, you know. So progressing load, when you decide to take a deep dive into this element itself, is actually so interesting that when I teach these reformer workshops, we actually spend way more time on it than I anticipate every single time because as soon as you start to dive into how it works, everything we do with a reformer is based on load progression. For example, telling someone if they want to make it harder to change their body position is purely based on load because you're either going to, if you change the body position, you're either going to stretch the springs more or stretch the springs less. Right. So, for example, if you're doing a lunge with one foot on the floor, one foot on the shoulder pad, if you stand further forward on the, on the floor – you reduce the travel of the carriage and reduce the, the spring tension. I think um, the best way to, to – if we're going to look at the lunge, we, we split it into those two categories where we've got like the, the supportive tension, less supportive, and then much less supportive. So we're saying direction of progression is uh, less tension is harder. We're saying body weight's the load. In that one, simply by having less spring tension in that exercise, it's just the easiest way to direct so to go down that pathway of progression. Uh, however – when we talk about heavy is harder, if you to take your foot and intentionally step it backwards, that is a very, very powerful, quick and easy way to progress the load because you're just changing the spring stretch. And heavy is harder, more stretch of spring, the harder it is. That works really well. But I do think it is important to mention foot placement when setting up that exercise, even on a light spring, because I've had clients step with their foot like halfway along the carriage travel. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like, <laughs> yep. yeah, dude, I don't think you're getting the full benefit of the exercise here because you, your spring's on tension the whole time yep. and you, your body weight's not really loading up as much as it, as it could. Yeah. Um, in that, definitely. Um, I suppose what, if I'm going to explain what I look for in that position, I want you to be able to stand up completely. And when you bend your front knee and lean forward, we're putting the. If we're doing that version of a lunge, where we're using body weight as a load. That means we have to direct the weight of the body onto the front leg to load up the glutes in the front leg. So, exactly which position you find yourself in at the bottom of the lunge is going to determine which part of your body you're loading. You know, if you keep on sliding backwards and putting all the weight on the carriage, you're going to load up the hip flex on the inside leg. So with this one, I see that movement pattern as more of like a single leg deadlift hinging forward with the upper body as opposed to sliding all the way back. But foot position is important because if you're standing too far forward, you can't stand up right completely because the carriage will come in to the platform before you're up. So, yeah, you have to have some intention with it Like because reality is some posi- body positions are going to be more optimal than others. And it's just depending on what you're trying to achieve with it. Um, now, I know some people like to teach that in that version of a lunge uh, where less tension is harder, using the body weight as a load, they like to actually not stand up completely. Uh, they might like to kind of keep the knee bent and kind of get to a higher position and come back down. I mean, all you're doing there is just keeping time and attention on the glute. Um, and if you want to do that, you can, but it just means people fatigue really quick because there's no rest. So it's like uh, you can basically just explain the experience. You can tell people what it's going to be uh, and you can make decisions um, for people Um based on what you want them to achieve, but the principles are the same. You know, like if you understand how it works, then when you make decisions, they're actually, uh, they can be incremental in helping a lot of people get the outcome we want. Like if I was to make the decision of not letting you stand up, that just basically means, hey, everybody, it's going to get really hard really quick. Yeah, and people are going to start stopping, coming out of the exercise, 
and there might be some people that can only do one rep or something in the group. I'm thinking like if there's some kind of like elderly person in there who's not very fit or whatever. Uh, and it's just going to mean that people are going to have like wildly varying experiences yeah. in the room, right? That's right? And plus you're going to get like, okay, you're 10 minutes into the class, everyone's completely shattered and it's like, okay, what do we do for the other 40 minutes now? <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's the challenge. If you teach exercises that only go for 30, 40 seconds, we're going to spend a lot of time changing body positions and spring tensions and, and props. So we're going to spend more time in transition time than actually working out if we so there has to. That's why I recommend like that ninety second to three minute range as a minimum because that just means you'll spend more time working out, which is better as a, it's a better experience as a client. Now the only way you can do that is to control how fast people fatigue. And the ninety seconds to three minutes might be, uh, and, and well, this is how I would teach it anyway. I'm, I guess I'm bouncing off you. Is this what you mean? Like, okay, just say we all start our long stretch, long stretch on like the the basic level spring, whatever that is, right? And then you go, okay, well, intermediate people, you can whack on a this spring, right, and keep going. But the beginners stay on what you're doing, right? So it actually does layer up to be harder and harder as we go and everyone kind of gets off the bus at whatever stop is the right for them, right? So in that three minutes or whatever it is, it's not necessarily me just doing like 99 reps of the exact same thing, although it might be if I'm a beginner, but if I'm more intermediate or advanced, I might do a few reps on the basic spring, then crank it up a notch and then do a few reps and crank it up a notch again, right, until I'm like, okay, I'm cooked now. That's right. So I would consider this strategy a progressive overload strategy for the exercise because you're starting in a base level position, which is achievable for everybody of all levels of ability. Every time I add a layer, it's not just a layer, it's scaling the load on the muscle group we're targeting. So now it's incrementally increasing the adversity. So people will be able to determine, am I capable of doing more or not? I've been provided an option which is harder. I get to choose if I do it or not. So you get people working at their optimal level and everyone gets to do the full duration of the exercise. I don't know, mate. I've been in your class and you didn't always provide me options. Sometimes you just come and change the spins <laughs> without consulting me. <laughs> that was an executive decision. Yeah. <laughs> came from corporate um no that was like yeah that was my choice so let's say it's shared decision making <laughs> yeah yeah um so i kind of i find that a fun thing like if if you're going to generalize and say hey most people that are brand new whenever things get hard they tend to stop so their relationship with adversity is oh don't know what that is it feels uncomfortable better stop but people that are intermediate and advanced they're like fuck me up they're like give me challenges because when you challenge them more they get more interested and more excited and they want the adversity so anyone with a background in training tends to lean into wanting more challenges so i just gave more challenges <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you're very capable um so if i wanted to implement this in my studio would one of the would kind of the first step be to kind of create and i know you've done this for you for your own teaching like basically a chart with all the exercises that I teach on a weekly basis right so whether it's long stretch lunges you know whatever it might be that calibrated okay here's the beginner intermediate advanced spring setting for this exercise based on average body mass and average body length yes so that would be a systematic way to incorporate progressive overload into the teaching style now the power of that is if all the instructors in your studio use the same terminology to like same exercise names they use the same terminology to describe exercise intensity they use the same spring levels now the clients actually have something to learn so it's like now they actually 
get to be a part of this because everyone's using different names, everyone's using different terminology, everyone's using different spring levels. It's just like there's nothing to learn because everyone's so different. So there has to be like some kind of consensus of what we're trying to do. If the if the spring levels are based on average body mass and average body length, they're going to be optimal for the majority of people. So now the instructors also have to understand, well, if someone is an outlier, how do I have to change it to make sure they get the same outcome? Now, that can all be systematically brought into the training programs like yeah, that can and be you, you could and, and you could even like if you're doing this yourself right and you're making your chart and you're saying okay long stretches you know red and a yellow's beginner reds are intermediate whatever you could say you'd have another column next to that that says for tall people you know reds beginner yeah. you know blues intermediate right and then for heavy people you know, red and a blues intermediate or, you know, or beginner or whatever, right? So you, you can actually just map out this and have an actual literal chart. Yeah. Yeah. That is something which is very achievable to do. And the cool thing about this is that if you have all this already, when these things present themselves in class, there isn't any kind of wondering what should I do. It's just instant adaption, instant changes. So because you have such an insight now into what they're experiencing, you have so much empathy, you just don't allow it to continue. You just go straight in there and just make a change. Um, and so if, yeah. if someone is taller, right, just say you came into your class, right, so you're taller than the average person in your class. So just say you were in class, would you yell out as the instructor, hey, everyone, put on, we're going to do long stretch, so you know, put on a red and a yellow if you're a beginner. Nathan, you put on two red. Or whatever, like, would you yell out that different spring setting, or how would you how would you communicate that to that person? So, for me, a red and a yellow is still very very supportive. So, uh, in that exercise and long stretch, that would definitely be fine uh, for me. So, my strategy is, I want to control the perception of everything that I do. So, to give an example, imagine Raph, if I only ever spoke to you if you did something air quotes wrong, you'd be like, "Oh shit, Nathan's coming over here." Oh, oh no, oh, you gave me something and now I've done something wrong. But if I'm always talking to everyone all the time, if I'm always optimizing spring tension or weights all the time, if I'm making things harder or lighter for people based on what they need all the time and I've got smiling, encouragement, enthusiasm all the time, out of five interactions with you, four of them are just based on encouragement and recognition of effort. And that's been my experience in your class, right? So four times it's like walk past fist bump. You know, you're doing awesome. Fifth time, it's like, here, have this heavier dumbbell. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's right. So now it's like whatever I normalize is normal for everybody. So if it's normal for me to change springs and weights based on making it more optimal for you, it doesn't matter why it's more optimal for you. If it's because you need more support or because you need more resistance, it, that doesn't matter at all. But if I only talk to you if something's wrong, air quotes, now there's going to be like hesitation. Even I'm going to feel awkward if coming over to you because you're the one that can't do this or whatever. Right. So there's a lot of, in your teaching, there's a lot of walking around the room yep. and there's like literally getting like, you know, adjusting people's springs constantly, you know, patting people on the shoulder constantly, calling people out and going, yeah, push out a bit further, would you, Sophie, you know, yep. um, constantly. And so, I mean, you're basically talking – a fair bit, but it's always specific communications directed to people to say either you're doing a good job or do this a bit differently or push a bit harder or that kind of thing. Yeah. So the every exercise you could say that before I even teach it, I could tell you the muscle group that we're targeting, I could tell you the load that we're using. It's either body weight 
or spring tension. I could tell you the direction of progression in the spring levels. That also means I could tell you how to make it harder or easier based on changing the body position to stretch the spring more or less. I could tell you which body position to spend more time in to increase the time and attention to make it harder. Like there's not a single part of this exercise that I couldn't explain to you why. Like doing if it. we're in long stretch, for example, spend more time with the carriage out makes it harder. Yeah. Right? In a lunge, spend more time at the bottom. Well, with the long stretch, we could also say, hey, if you want to make it harder, everyone, step your feet onto the headrest, so behind the shoulder pads, because now it's going to less, stretch the spring less. less. Spring stretch, yeah. So that's progression now because you have to deal with more of your own body mass, you know. Plus smaller base of support, so less, less like more challenge to balance. Yeah. Uh, and then to make it easier, you could just say step the feet closer to halfway up the reformer because you stretch the spring more. So because I know exactly which muscle group we're targeting, um, and I can articulate everything we're doing, that means that I can tell people what they're going to feel before they do. And I can tell people how to adjust it to, to make it harder or easier. Um, so it's kind of like I'm just giving them the insight into their own experience and then all they have to do is just listen to the options I provide them. If they're like, shit, I can do this, this is easy, just take the option I provide. And then, oh, yeah, it's pretty tough now. So like in the process of me sharing that knowledge with them, they actually start to understand it too. So I kind of feel like teaching a class is almost like holding a mini workshop as well because I want to educate clients as I instruct them to on the, let them know not just what we're doing but how does it work? Why is less tension harder in this exercise? Which muscle group are we loading? Why did I give you that progression? Why did I ask you to spend more time in this body position? To actually give you the why now because it correlates perfectly with the loading strategy and why it's harder everyone gets it they get right. it and when you say why you mean like because this is really good for your abs or this is really going to help your butt or that type of thing is that what you mean uh, i say why for example if we're doing that lunge and we're using body weight as a load and we've got a, a tension which is supportive and then we give you less tension as a progression uh, option for spring levels in that lunge we could say that Every time you lean forward and we put the body weight onto the front leg, we're loading up the glutes in the front leg. Now, to explain why, if I said, hey, everybody, if you want to make it harder, next time you go down at a scooter, the reason this is harder is because we're spending more time loading up the glutes so you're going to fatigue quicker. That is the why. That's why I chose to give you that option. Um, so now they're like, okay. So then if I go, hey, everyone, if you want to make it harder, go for three scooters at the bottom. They understand why, because I told them that it's not just a layer of movement, it's an intentional scaling of the load on the muscle group we're targeting. So I'm selecting the layers of movement we're adding, they have to increase the intensity, they have to make your fatigue quicker, otherwise it doesn't achieve anything. Because if I just add in random movement layers in any position, I can't control how hard it is, I can't make it harder, it's like it's too random. It has to. I think there has to be that intention to scale with everything you offer because now it means that if we start at a level everyone can do and all I do is give you incremental progression, hey, there's not a single person here that won't be challenged at some point. And because we're doing durations of 90 seconds to three minutes, we've got plenty of time. Right. And that person who can't scale the initial movement, they're still fine doing the basic plan, you know, yep. the whole way through. Yep. Because you've started as at a starting point that is sufficiently supported or easy enough that the Everyone in the room, like the, the 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 least fit person in the room, can do that for a couple of minutes. That's right. So that one of the criteria, if you want to be objective with like uh, assessing the exercises you teach, is can every single person in the room do this? If you teach something that a percentage of the people in the room can't do for whatever reason, then we've started in a position which is too hard. 
because now it's going to disrupt the class. Now you're going to have to give them something different. If you ever have to offer regression, the first thing you gave is too hard. But the only thing which really determines that is who's there. So that means you have to make yeah, you have to make decisions on who's in front of you now, not just some kind of standard, but you have to make decisions based on who do we have right now. So if I, I've got a class full of people that um, don't have great body awareness or don't have great balance or don't have great coordination, I'm not going to teach things that which really demand a lot of that. I'm going to choose the easiest version of an exercise which have really good balance so it's easy to stabilize. Sim- moving pants are simple. And then we're just going to scale the load. Everyone's going to enjoy it. Everyone can do everything. If all of a sudden you're teaching a class which has more attributes that have better body awareness, better understanding, we could start in harder positions because everyone can do it. So where you start is based on who you've got. Right. And um, if you don't know the class yet, you just start out with something easy and watch the move. Let's start with cat stretch or something simple. Look at the move and pretty soon, within 30 seconds, you'll have a sense of where they're at physically. Yeah, and you kind of get this sixth sense that will develop over time. The more bodies you see moving on a mach- on the reformer, you start to see patterns, you start to anticipate, uh, and now that kind of links into your decision-making process. So you can you can actually predict exactly what would work and what wouldn't work purely based on who you see in front of you and how they move. Even as simple as watching them walk through the door, you can almost tend to, tend to pick up what people are capable of. Like, for example... If we take that one exercise of a lunge and we say, okay, the position your body weight, uh, where your body weight is will determine how hard it is to balance. If you're standing on the floor when you do the lunge, it's the easiest position, ground level, hard flat surface. If we put you on an elevated surface like a box, it's going to be a bit harder. Now, automatically the demands of balance, it's like a little bit more challenging because the risk of falling would mean that it can be for a percentage of the population a bit threatening to be on a single leg standing off the ground. You know, if we were to put the body weight onto the platform, depending on the surface of the platform, if it's soft or if it's shorter or if it's awkward, it's going to make it harder to balance. If you put your body weight on the carriage, doing a lunge facing towards the risers, you're on an elevated moving surface. It's harder to balance. You know, you have to understand how the spring tension works, how you have to have confidence in where you put your body weight. So you could say that just by choosing which version of that exercise to do, you, that choice would be made based on who's there. Right, and that's an example of progressing control, right? You yes. can progress that same, basically same load, same spring, same range of motion, yep. just different levels of control. That's right, and that idea would be the same in load too because imagine if I came in uh, and taught a class and I saw there was people capable of not using the load which I wanted to use. If I just use that load anyway and certain people can't do it, it's not going to help them. So it's the same principle with um, control. If I know people aren't capable of that level of control, but I give them something which requires it, they can't do it. So just considering what these like levels are and just intentionally choosing to make sure everyone can do it, that's like a really, really cool thing to do. It's really interesting to me uh, that your, your thinking has developed really in, very much in parallel with the way we do things at Breathe. It's like you never did our course, I don't think, but – uh, when I trained in Stop Pilates, we learned, and I think this is the way most Pilates trainings work, although I've only got experience inside Stop Pilates, that you basically you learn the exercise and then you learn the, quote, modifications or the regressions if someone can't do the exercise. So the mindset when you're programming is, oh, everyone's going to do whatever 
And then, oh, Nathan, you can't do that. So here's an easier version for you, right? Which is really different to what you're talking about here. And this is the way we teach it, Brady, as well. We, we use the terminology layers just to mean like a harder version of the same thing, right? Yeah. And so you, it's exactly the same what you described. We start with a version that we're confident, like 100% confident every single person in the room can do for a couple of minutes, right? And then you just go, okay, how's everyone doing? Okay, we can do the next layer, next layer, next. And you keep going until you're like, okay, no takers. Okay, good. <laughs> we're, we're done, right? And it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that we've, like, we've developed this system and you've developed this system and it's, we can have a conversation and go, yeah, totally agree with what you're saying. It's like, yeah, you just come up with yourself. We just come up with it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's what happens when you just put yourself through a lot of experiences in a short period of time. Like if you, well, my strategy when I was learning was to teach weekdays and then on the weekends I'd be free. And on the weekends I'd just go and observe classes. I'd get to know different instructors. I'd seek them out based on being recognized amongst their peers as being excellent. And I'd say, hey, is it cool if I just sit on a box and watch? And I'd watch them teach for like three, four, five classes in a row on my free time. And I was like looking for patterns. I was looking for what were they, what were the movement patterns they were using? Why were they using? What was the springs they were using? Why, 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 why? And if you, you, if you watch people that are high performers for long enough, you tend to recognize things that they do consistently. It's habits. They have habits. And I was like, well, I'm going to start to do these things too. And over time, it, to me, it seemed like there's a massive difference between books and reality like um it seems like books can be pretty good at getting like a basic understanding but to really refine it to like a, a high level which works for the majority of people in a in a variable setting like a group class there are different philosophies which help you be more adaptive and, and better suited to helping more people so i was trying to figure out what is it what exactly are they doing which enables them to do that you know so uh observing a lot so I was basically teaching a lot, but then I was observing a lot uh, and also jumping into classes physically to experience them myself. So I think it's just a lot of contact hours and it just builds up this kind of a, a deeper level of understanding. Um, and then from that understanding, you start to prioritize information. And to me, the only thing that really made sense to me was if I'm going to have 10 different ways to do the same exercise, which is the best version which helps the most people? And when you start to think strategies like that, then you have to consider what people are capable of and you have to consider all the different elements, including load. And that's why I think it's like a perfect marriage, like incorporating progressive overload into what we're doing as something which you articulate and intentionally scale. You're using it with everything you're doing. Um, now you have the ability to kind of help more people. And yeah, that's a, that's what worked for me a lot. Yeah, and that idea that you know of incorporating this you know this missing principle into what we do is and I, I don't know for any of the listeners of this show I mean imagine by and large they're kind of converts to this more progressive way of thinking so we're probably preaching to the choir here but you know the idea that those those principles of Pilates like those are principles of Pilates and then there's yoga's got different principles and personal training's got different principles and physical therapy's got different principles yeah it's like yeah, but it's like the common denominator there is it's a human body, you know, doing all of those things. So there are certain principles of human movement that are applicable in any situation where there's a human moving, right, regardless of whether it's gymnastics, dance, ballet, yoga, CrossFit, Pilates, or, you know, fitness training. It's like it's still a human moving. So they, there are principles of human movement that are applicable to any 
movement, discipline. And uh, those principles, you know, are just what we've been talking about, right? So you can increase strength, range of motion and control. And the con- the principle of progressive overload really, I mean, you didn't make it up. It's like on page one of every, you know, exercise science textbook that's been written in the last hundred years. Yeah. Well, I did a Google search earlier today trying to figure out when it was first used. Couldn't tell you exactly if it's right or not. But, but one thing in- interesting I came across was the idea of a – uh, it was a what was the name of the person? Um, it's like a, a story. It was like a maybe a a story from ancient Greece. Um, but basically, it oh, was, Milo of of Crete. Uh, that's right. Yeah, Milo of Crete. Yeah. So he, he basically with the, with the bull. Yeah. yeah so the, his story was that he would pick up a calf, uh, and he'd do some I don't know some exercise or some movements or walk around for a bit, and he put it down. But then next day, he'd do the same thing. And obviously, as the calf was maturing, it was getting bigger and heavier. And within a space of four years, that calf had turned into a bull and he was just picking up a bull, you know. And that's kind of basically the exact story of progressive overload in that story. And that's like a really old story. That's like um, ancient Hellenistic Greece. It's like 300 BC or something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's pretty – like anyone could hear that story and and understand what they're talking about, you know, like, yeah. So – I also think the same thing too when I see uh, parents picking up their children. It's the same idea. They just get heavier and heavier and heavier, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, at some point though you stop picking them up. My daughter's 16. She doesn't let me pick her up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny if that was a training exercise, pick up your kids. <laughs> Luckily there are commercially available weights that you can just get. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Good talk. Yeah, yeah, times have changed. Um, but that, that's uh, – I appreciate the chat, Raph. It's good. Um so I'd say that yeah, as a as a general general thing, if you could bring that training principle of progressive overload into more of a conscious awareness, uh, and you could articulate things like the not just the exercise, but with the spring tension we're using, which muscle group are we loading? Um, what's an optimal speed of movement, range of motion? Um, if people aren't able to achieve that, you can adapt the spring tension. There's levels to the spring tension where people can progress. You know, it can be harder with more resistance or harder with less resistance because we're the ones that are facilitating these workout experiences. So if we can actually make it easy to understand then and we can implement progressive overload into what we do, we just help people. That's it, you know. And dear listener, if you're um, feeling overwhelmed with the idea of implementing this, just do a little bit, right? You don't have to like totally radically change your teaching, you know, before six o'clock tonight when you teach your next class. It's like, we'll just start with long stretch, right? Teach the exact classes like you normally do, but just get on the reformer for 10 minutes before class and figure out what the spring choices are for long stretch for beginner, intermediate, advanced in your reformer. Write those down somewhere and just go, okay, I'm going to teach a normal class, but when I teach long stretch, I'm going to say, okay, here are the spring choices, beginner, intermediate, advanced. And I'm going to look at people moving. I might go and adjust them, you know, to make it a bit harder or a bit easier if, if I think they need it. Yep. And just add another one next week, another one next week. And before you know it, you'll have a, a core of a dozen exercises that you teach almost every class that you know these spring tensions for, like the back of your hand. And you'll only, and then you teach like three or four additional exercises, like a few mermaids here and there, or a bit of a neck stretch. And it's like, bam, there's your class. So, the ability to incorporate progressive overload into the class is just going to benefit people, full stop. Um, the more you understand it, that means the more ways you could incrementally scale the load 
and incrementally scaling the load is what makes progressive overload achievable. Because if we were to, to give you a progression, but the progression was too much load, then it doesn't work. So the more ways you understand how to change it, like today we spoke about changing the spring itself. You could change the spring stretch by changing the body position. You could change um, the body position to load the muscle group more with more of your own body weight. You could change the body position to increase the time of attention so it spends more time working, less time resting. Those little things like that mean that when you offer new layers of movement, they're just going to scale the load incrementally, which makes it achievable for everybody. And uh, and the next layer might just be do what, keep doing what you're doing, but just hinge forward at the hips another 30 degrees. Okay, and we're going to go for another five. Right, so it might be as simple as that. You don't need a massive arsenal of, of exercises if you can just do little adjustments to the foot position or the body lean or the whatever you know spring tension. And the clients have a very different experience in that exercise. Yeah, like you could say that if you're doing an exercise like doing some work for your chest, if you're kneeling on the carriage facing the front of the reformer and you're holding onto the short loops and you're pushing your arm straight, if you were to add in a hip lift – as you push your arms straight, you're just stretching the springs more. So that's basically an option for progression there because you're progressing the load they have to push against. If you're doing like a, a heavy pull down, like you're lying on your back and you're holding maybe onto the long loops with your arms straight and you're pulling your hands straight arms down to your pockets, letting them stop just above the shoulders, maybe you've got three springs on plus. If you were to hold the short loops instead, the distance between the long loop and the short loop is the distance the spring will stretch more. That's why it's harder. So every single thing you do when it comes to offering options in body position is going to affect the load in some way. So how cool would it be if you just knew exactly how to order the options you provide to make it the most incremental process possible so everybody can do everything, yeah. And when you start implementing progressive overload in your classes, within a few weeks, people start coming to you and going, holy shit, I've never been this strong in my life, you know, like – this is Mary. She's my friend. She's asking me, what the heck has, have I been doing? You know, <laughs> and she wants to come to class too. And that's when you, your classes start to fill up with with people who just want more of this experience because I've never felt so awesome. So, yes, I, I definitely recommend trying these ideas out on your own body too. You know, get in an exercise, do a couple of reps, change the body position or change the spring, see how different it feels. Um, and when you say change the body position, you don't mean like, oh, go from standing to lying on your back. You mean like hinge forward at the hip or move your foot backwards towards the risers a bit or forwards towards the foot bar a bit or whatever, right? Just yeah. adjust the spring tension by adjusting your body position or that's so like when you move your foot forwards or backwards, that changes the spring stretch, right? But when you hinge forward at the hips in a standing lunge, that loads the glutes more because now you're in more hip flexion and there's more the more of your weight is forwards of the glutes, so the glutes is now, you know, supporting your torso weight, right? So that's what you mean when you say change the body position. You mean like just adjust the, the tension basically on that muscle group. That's right because uh, every adjustment we make, if we organise it in a system to scale it, that means that every time we give an option, it means that more people will find it uh, progressively harder to do. They're going to fatigue quicker, so the different levels of ability present in the room will all be challenged at some point. That only that understanding only comes from knowing what it feels like to do it yourself, like how you could move the foot back or move the foot forward or change the hand position. Or, right. And um, in a lunge, I mean, if you're hinged forwards and your glutes burning and if you then reach your arms forwards, that's like takes another another notch up, right, because you've got more weight forwards of your centre of mass, so the glutes got more load on it. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you incorporate the understanding of using like uh, dumbbells and how you can change the position of them on the body. It's just really infinite the potential of movement you could create. But I think it's so powerful if you even with all the infinite potential of different movement, you could order it in a way which actually has an achievable outcome, which is useful for people. So what I, what I really love to see, and I think what's the indication of a, a fantastic instructor who understands these load progression strategies is they always start in a position everyone can do. Every time they give you an option to make it harder, it makes it harder for the muscle group we're targeting. Um, every time they give you an option to make it harder, it scales it incrementally and doesn't make it unachievable. Uh, by the end of the exercise, everyone feels what we meant to feel. That's that on repeat means it's a great class. And then, and I agree. I agree with what you just said. And then the the creativity and the artistry of teaching becomes much more, I guess, refined. And you're not thinking about oh, I've got to teach like 99 crazy variations of different exercises. It's like okay, now we're going to do lunges for like five minutes right? But we're just going to like tweak the foot position or the torso lean or the arm position or whatever at each layer so that it's like, it's a different experience for that person, more intense experience as we progress through those layers. Basically, it's literally just lunges for five minutes, right? That's right. I mean, and uh, you could say that the the fundamental movement pattern and the system to scale the load is always going to be basically the same. The different I uh, see the the purpose of creativity is finding different movement patterns which you could use, but the primary focus will remain the same. So the different movement patterns are going to contribute to achieving the same outcome. Um, they're not going to basically make it completely different. So with that idea with the lunge, you could say that at the bottom of the lunge is the hardest position for your glutes. Now, what we add in as a movement pattern to do down there, that's where our creative creativity comes in like how many different variations do you know you could do at the bottom arm bicep curls arm reaches forward Mm. torso twists heel raises you know like yeah yeah. and so that that as an example for every single exercise you teach like that kind of um, selection process of where you want them to spend more time that means that everyone's going to get the experience you intended Um, so that's that to me is the simplicity and the the challenge of being an instructor it's can you you know, already know what you want to achieve before you even start the exercise and then guide people along the process of doing it. And can you be the one to help them make these changes in load too? Like if you've seen a client being on the same springs for like two months, change the springs, you know. Like uh, one of the exercises where I see the least amount of spring changes habitually is any leg exercises with your feet in the straps. Single leg, double leg. Most people have never changed the springs ever with that. You know, maybe they've only ever used a red or, you know, like a heavy spring. Just go heavier, you know. The potential is now if you can just incrementally load it up um, over time, they're going to get more of a benefit than just sticking on the same level. Yeah, and like you said with the example of the the shoulder stand, the more precise you make the movement, the more you're going to, you know, get the right experience and work those, you know, that same muscle groups. Like if you think about like sideline leg in straps, for example, it's like whether you roll your hip forwards or backwards make a massive difference to where, where you're working. Whether your foot, your working leg is higher or lower than your hip makes a massive difference. You know, like how, whether your knee's straight or bent makes a massive difference. Which way your torso's angled on the carriage makes a massive difference. Like all of these things are, are important uh, in determining how much you're loading that top glute, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's uh, that's the – 
exciting challenge we all have is to um to I think just to bring more intention into our decision making and to understand that for us to help everybody that load is an element we can't actually just deny that. I mean, if we all just go to space, then we could say it's not an element. But, you know, we're living in an environment where we've got gravity, uh, we've got resistance, we're doing resistance training. I, I can just embrace the those principles that of training and allow that to help you help more people teaching Pilates. Well said. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Raf. <laughs> After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.